WMNF Tampa. This is an encore presentation of Wavemakers with Janet and Tom about Tampa Bay's craft beer scene. It was recorded live in April of 2023. We will not be taking phone calls today. with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Tom, and Janet could not be with us today. Handling the board for us today is occasional beer lover John Dunn, and answering the phones is Irene. So if you want to join our conversation today, call 813-239-9663, and Irene will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org, or text us at 813 813- 4330885 Today's guests have been making waves in the Tampa Bay craft beer scene for years. Once a craft beer desert, Florida is now one of the leaders in the industry, and Tampa Bay has been at the forefront with more than 60 breweries now operating in the region and about 400 around the state. Much of that growth has been in the last decade. I was remind, reminded of that remarkable growth during the recent Brewers Ball, an annual beer festival featuring the medal winners of the Best Beer in Florida competition. I hadn't attended in years and was struck by the sheer number of winning breweries that I'd never heard of. How did that happen and where is this going? How many breweries can our region support? To answer those questions and plenty more are the owners of three of Tampa Bay's best breweries. First, Devin Kreps owner of Seventh Sun Brewing, which opened 11 years ago in Dunedin and has since expanded to a bigger facility in Tampa. Welcome, Devin. Thank you. Next, Charlie Mears, who worked a number of years on the sales side of Cigar City Brewing and Cycle Brewing, is now co-owner of Magnanimous Brewing in Tampa. Welcome, Charlie. Thanks, Tom. I should add that Magnanimous has since added another facility in Bradenton. Yes, sir. And finally, we have Brittany Berry co-owner of Berry House Beer Company, which opened four years ago in Ybor City and quickly established itself as a brewer's brewery. Welcome, Brittany. Nice to be here. Thank you. Devin, let's start with you. When Seventh Sun opened 11 years ago, there were maybe a half dozen breweries in the Tampa Bay area. Some were, that weren't even established then or, 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 or well-known uh, breweries such as Cycle, Green Bench, Angry Chair, and Rap. And a few have opened and closed since then. When you opened, I was covering craft beer for the Tampa Bay Times, and I wrote a story for the Tampa Bay Times about how Seventh Sun was an example of how breweries were growing through collaboration, not competition. But now we have 10 times as many breweries. That's a lot of competition. Has collaboration gone out the window, Devin? Um, no. Uh, uh Sorry. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, we still definitely work together. And, um, uh, yeah, we help each other out. Uh, but I will say that uh, having so many breweries now in the area, um, you know, we are, there is more competition, so to speak, in terms of getting tap handles and things like that. But I don't, say, I don't think there's any animosity, if you will. Uh, what about you, Charlie? What are you experiencing? Because you've, you've, you've uh, seen it from several, the, the view of several different breweries that you've worked for. 
Yeah, there's still a lot of collaboration that goes on out there. The competition aspect of it, I think, mostly happens through the distribution end of things and through the distributors themselves. And we kind of stay out of that particular uh, arena. Um, but, yeah, I think there are there is a little bit of a, you know, there's different layers of collaboration as we go because there's people who have been in the business for 20 years, people who have been in the business for five years. So it's like you have to, you know, different merging of these different tiers of people who have been in the business different times. It's, you know, it's an interesting thing to watch. It's an unusual uh, approach to business uh, to think that, uh, you know, uh, you're encouraged to, uh, to open a brewery. You're, you're working for a brewery. Yeah. And they don't have you sign a non-compete clause. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want you to go ahead and open another brewery. What was your experience, Brittany, uh, before you opened uh, Berry House? Um, very much exactly what you just ex- explained. Um, so we were in Gainesville, Florida, and um, my husband Jim started brewing with First Magnitude Brewing. And they hired him knowing well um, that we were planning on opening a brewery. Um, we were even going to open in Gainesville. So it was something that um, would have been their direct competitors. But, um, you know, <clears throat> I think the rising tide lifts all ships still occurs within craft beer because craft beer is still very much a minority when you look at the big big beer landscape. Um, and so if people have good experience in our tap room, uh, then they're more likely to go to another craft brewery, to another craft brewery and kind of get... Um, you know, there's there's a certain culture that goes along with, with going to a craft brewery and enjoying that with your friends. You're paying a little bit more for your beer, potentially, um, but you're enjoying it differently and you're enjoying it, it more. And they're starting to cluster around each other. When you, uh, Devin, when you opened Seventh Sun, I think there was only one brewery at that point, uh, which was uh, Dunedin Brewing, which uh, calls itself the, f- the f- oldest microbrewery in, 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 in Florida. Um, and now there are, what, maybe... I think there's nine uh, at this point. Nine, in, just in Dunedin alone. So uh, that's, that's pretty remarkable. Well, let's go way back to 1978 when there were only, believe it or not, 80 breweries in the entire country. Consolidation after World War II had killed local breweries and the rise of watery, pale, yellow beer that all tasted the same was dominating the market. But that was also the year that Jimmy Carter signed legislation legalizing homebrewing. And a lot of homebrewers went on to start their own breweries. Uh, so in your view, how important was that? Now, I know, let's start with you, Brittany, because you were a homebrewer yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, my husband was primarily a homebrewer. Um, I'm number one taster in the household. And, uh, and so... I guess, what, what what exactly was your question with that? Well, I think a lot of people are surprised when they discover that people go from brewing it at home oh, sure. to brewing it professionally. Sure. I, I guess there are other businesses like that, maybe, but if you're a we, software um, so engineer... So Jim worked at First Mag for two and a half years, yeah. um, and that's primarily because when you go from cooling down your beer in a bathtub and... Uh, <laughs> hand bottling everything um there's a lot of differences between doing it on a on a big tank with a lot of pressure a lot of chemicals high heat um so we wanted to get into the business knowing what we were getting into uh so it was it was pertinent for us for him to learn on a bigger system um to know how to go from a, a home brewing system to um, to what we have as a 10-barrel system. And I guess at that time a lot of people were home brewing because they just couldn't find the beer that they wanted to drink 
or they couldn't find interesting beer in their market. Yeah, sure. For us, um, it was, you know, you can brew beer cheaper than you can make beer or buy <laughs> beer. So uh, why not do that? Right. <laughs> I, I was I was doing some home brewing myself for a while, but I kind of stopped because there's, you know, there's so many great beers out there that you can you can grab. And, you know, it, and it is a lot of work uh, for basically two cases of beer in the system that I was using. Uh-huh. Um, the other connection with home brewing that I find fascinating is that Tampa Bay Brewing Company really started as a home brewing store in Carrollwood. And it, it, I don't know if legend is correct, but legend has it that they sold the first supplies for Dunedin Brewery's first beer. So you've got that, you've got that really tight connection there. Um, but where would you trace the current craft beer boom from? What, what's, what touched it off, would you say, here in Florida? Um, I know one thing that um, was surprising to me when I first uh, relocated to Florida that, um, you know, that there were these strange bottle size laws forever. And so you couldn't get things that were outside of 12 ounces or, you know, whatever it was. And that really limited the opportunity for different types of beers for people to get in Florida. 12, 16, and 32 were the only bottles. So... If you wanted to get uh, one of those fancy European beers, mm-hmm. you couldn't get them in Florida, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, because it's like 11.9 something ounces instead of, yeah. So uh, I think that inspired a lot of people to homebrew around here as well, uh, which got them into, very vested into good beer, craft beer. And so there weren't that many craft breweries. And then as they started to open, you had this already, you know, existing consumer base that was brewing their own that wanted to, you know, engage with the craft breweries in the area. So so once they changed that law, you could uh, fill 22-ounce bombers and things like that. Interestingly, Tom Lee, a Republican who went on to be... Uh, Senate president and uh, is a teetotaler is the person who pushed that law through. (laughs) Interesting. And he did it because he was trying to help small businesses. Um, But then in 2009, Cigar City uh, opened their tasting room on on Spruce Street. And before then, pretty much you only had uh, brew pubs. Dunedin Brewing was a brew pub. Tampa Bay Brewing Company, brew pub. You had to have food. They figured out a way to uh, sell beer directly to the consumer uh, through a, you could call it a loophole, I guess, because uh, the legislature had passed a law to allow um, uh, Bush Gardens to sell beer directly to consumers because it supported tourism. So now they did the same thing. And uh, next thing you know, there are tasting rooms opening up all over the place. I, I seem to recall it in the early days, they were actually keeping track of tourists. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we still, uh, you, you kind of keep track with it with a couple of uh, different things uh, online and whatnot through, like, the Brewer's Law, like, their numbers. It doesn't tell you exactly what's going on, but you can kind of see by season as the numbers go up and whatnot, um, what you're going through volume-wise. Uh, but, you know, I I think, especially where we live in Tampa, like, we get people from all over the country that come in. So with a lot of our thoughts on it. It's like, you know, if we get invited to a festival in like Iowa, I'll probably see those people again because there's a cheap flight from Des Moines to St. Pete. So <laughs> beer tourism is a thing. Definitely. Yeah. For sure. Oh yeah, very much so. For sure. Yes. Our Tampa Bay Beer Week uh, does great for all of the breweries. Um, it's the first week of March, first full week of March every year. Mm-hmm. And every brewery generally puts something special on, um, whether it be a bottle release or a can release or a collaboration or a event. Um, and 
I know that our sales spike. I mean, we, we definitely have a great March every year because of Beer Week. That's kind of like our Black Friday in the retail uh-huh. world. It's just ours moves up a couple of mo- a months. <laughs> Same thing, Devin, at Seventh Son? Yeah, definitely. If you're just joining us, uh, uh, we are talking to the owners of three of the finest uh, craft breweries in Florida. And uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, please call us at 813-239-9663. Or you can email us at djwmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. What's your favorite brewery? What's your favorite kind of beer? Do you think we have too many beers on the market now? That leads me to a question that I often get asked by people who know that I'm kind of a a beer geek, uh, which is how many breweries can we support and i guess the answer to that is if anybody knew they'd be rich right but (laughs) we do have more than 60 breweries i often say that well you know in germany every small town has their own brewery Mm -hmm. so do you see what the tasting room model allows you to keep a hundred percent of their profits right as opposed to sharing it with a distributor so it uh it strikes me that the key part of your business model is being able to continue to, to do that. Is, is that. Would that be correct? How important is the tasting room to your business, Charlie? It's very important. Um, but the wholesale end of it is also pretty important. I think I've always um, likened it to sort of an accordion. Like there's a lot of times when we don't have enough beer in the tap room because, you know, it's going crazy. We're selling a lot. And uh, there's a lot of times when you have a little bit too much because uh, you need to send some out in the market. And people having it in the market drives business to the tap room as well. And then likewise, when they come and they have it at the at the brewery, they can get it out, you know, at their favorite bar in their hometown mm-hmm. uh, around. So I think that's there's a good synergy that has to happen between having the tap room and uh, distribution, but also it's like you do get to the margins way better in the tap room, of course. Um, that would be profit margins. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> very much. Because that. the distributors keep about yeah. what is it, seventy-five cents on the dollar, or it's a, it, about thirty yeah. percent. About yeah. they keep thirty yeah. percent. Yeah, and then you have the retailer who's going to bump it up another thirty yeah. or so. Gotcha. So it's yeah. So like Charlie was yeah. saying, the the margins in the tap room are key. Like that yeah. keeps that keeps your brewery running. Um, the wholesale end of it is, I love the accordion analogy. Um, it's if you have too much beer, you pump out too much beer and you can sell it elsewhere, that brings people into the tap room. That's at least the goal. Because there's never like this perfect model where you just make the exact same amount of, or the exact amount of beer that you need because inevitably you're going to have this spike in popularity where you're going to blow through way more than you thought. And then you're going to have these weird, like, you know, in Florida, if it rains, people don't leave their house. So it's <laughs> like if we have three weeks of that, then it's like, all right, well, we got to But they want to sit somewhere. outside. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what, what about you, Devin? You opened a second tasting room in Seminole Heights, actually not too far from the studios that we're broadcasting from here. Okay, yeah. Okay. But um, uh, you're on Nebraska and Seminole Heights. And yeah, Nebraska and Sly, basically. Um, yes, and part of the reason that I opened that location was to increase our ability to distribute more. Our original location in Dunedin is very small, and uh, it was a struggle to produce enough to send out into distro. And uh, so Tampa's really allowed us to broaden that a lot. Um, so. so let's talk about... Uh, your individual breweries and what it is, your, what are your goals for the brewery other than making a lot of money? <laughs> what the types of beers that you have, uh, you are producing? Devin, let's start with you. And let me just say before you mention the beers that you're making, we got a text message uh, 
from someone who says that Headbanger is their favorite IPA. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's awesome. Yeah, that's one of our flagship beers. I'd say that um, we're mostly known for IPAs and uh, sour beers, fruited sour beers, uh, barrel-aged sour beers. Uh, while we make every pretty much every style um, under the rainbow, um, we... We focus on those primarily, and we've just recently started to um, make hard seltzers, and and part of that for us is also trying to, you know, I think there's a common kind of hard seltzer that you find on the market. You know, it's clear, it's fake flavoring, it's, you know, comes in a certain kind of can. Well, we're trying to kind of blend that between a fruited sour like a Berliner and a seltzer so that you can kind of have that more craft experience with a hard seltzer, which can be potentially gluten-free, uh, et cetera. So um, that's kind of a newer thing that we're working on. Well, seltzer, um, I don't, hard seltzer was not even a category when you opened in Dunedin, right? <laughs> that's it, correct. It, yeah. But honestly, Berliner Weiss, as people know them today, was barely a thing then either. Oh, right, you right. know, it was, it was us and Cycle and um, a few others uh, Wakefield, you know, making those kind of beers and trying to figure out how to make them. And so, um, you know, if there's one thing you can know for sure about the craft beer industry is it will change. Yeah. And you're probably right if you don't guess where it's going to go <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah, it changes a lot. And uh, we like to change with it and evolve. Well, the Sours is a really interesting choice you made. Now, I don't know if you call it Florida Vice, uh, we, we kind of bounce around sometimes. Yeah. Today, yes. Tomorrow, no. I don't know. <laughs> I can't decide. <laughs> but uh, for those uh, listening who are not familiar with these kinds of uh, styles of beer, a, a Berliner Weiss is a, is a tart beer. And in Germany, it's traditionally served with uh, a couple of different flavored syrups because it, it can be a little tart and that cuts the tartness of it. Uh, but in Florida, you all decided, what, to add the fruit right into it? Why, why mess around with adding syrup, right? Exactly. I mean, we're, we're in a fruit-rich state, and it really lends itself to the weather here and things like that. So, yeah, we just started playing around with adding a bunch of fruit to the beer because it's so complimentary. Yeah. And, and I remember when Wakefield uh, started pouring his beer at some of the uh, beer festivals, and he would immediately get a huge line. It was clear that there was a, an untapped market for that. Uh, now, Charlie, what are you all specializing in at Magnanimous? Uh, so we specialize mostly in hazy IPAs. Um, when we opened in 2020, there wasn't someone that was doing a whole lot of those. And that wasn't you know, initially part of the plan. Like when we first started talking about the brewery in 2018 and you know, hazy IPAs and whatnot, we're still, there's still a lot of detractors saying it was a, you know, trend or whatnot. And uh, as we got closer, we're like, it's not really anyone that's kind of cornered the market on that here. So, No, actually, I can't think of anybody who's making hazies the way you make them. Nah. The hazies you're making are, are very similar to what I first experienced up in New England, you know, tell you the yeah. truth, Trillium and... I mean, well, we appreciate that. That's yeah. high. Uh, they're awesome. High. Uh, I lost my words. Praise. Yes, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Thank God there's three of us here. <laughs> oh, uh, between the four of us, we have a brain that's, yeah. that's functioning. So yeah, uh, but yeah, we uh, we kind of do a little bit of everything, but definitely uh, more on the the IPA end of things. But we do a lot of lagers, and we've we're growing our barrel aged. Uh, beer situation as well as we as we go so yeah. want to you know 
I don't think everything for everyone is what we're looking for, but we definitely don't want to have somebody walk out because we don't have something on tap. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a lot of different uh, variations of your beers, too. Yes, we, very we don't much have so. just four core beers like no. a lot of breweries have done. Now, uh, uh, Barry, you, you all took... Barry, I'm sorry. <laughs> Brittany, Barry House took a, a very different uh, approach. Uh, because did. most of the breweries in the Tampa Bay area produce ales. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. Ales are cheaper to make. They're quicker to make, right? Mm-hmm. Lagers are, mm-hmm. takes it longer. It makes a lot more sense. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> business sense. From a business standpoint, it's more expensive to make a lager, right? It is. Um, I mean, explain, the hops, explain to our listeners so the difference between a lager and yeah, there's there's two, there's two kinds of beer, categories. lagers and ales. Right. Yeah, sure. Spontaneous fermentation is, is a little outside of that, but yeah. um, <clears throat> so lagers and ales and um, ales generally. The difference is the yeast. So you've got lager yeast. You have ale yeast. Ale yeast is a um, hotter fermenting um, yeast, so it can be fermented at a higher temperature for a shorter period of time. Lager yeast um, is a bottom fermenting, colder fermenting yeast, so it takes a longer time. It's kind of low and slow method. It'll take six weeks in the tank. Um, ales you can get out and turn around ten, two weeks. Yeah. Um, and lagers have been the dominant uh, uh, macro uh, beer uh, for you know a century since the since the Germans moved to the United States in what the, the Germans 19th came over century? in the 1850s. Yep. So yeah, um, we have a, a long history actually. Jim's. Uh, Great, great, great grandfather um, came over with those German immigrants, brought over lager yeast, and started a big lager brewery up in Detroit. And so we've got a, a cool family history of beer. Um, and then fast forward, you know, 150 years, the whole United States is drinking lager beer in the form of, you know, Bud and Miller and Coors and all that. Um, but as far as the craft side goes, there's not a whole lot of loggers out there. So we, we took that niche and we ran with it. Um, we like to drink that style of beer generally. We went over to, to Germany uh, years ago and realized like, hey, you know, we were drinking a lot of Belgian beers, honestly. Um, so we went over to Belgium and Germany and we're like, hey, this is uh, pretty sweet. And Bruges, tastes the a best lot beer over there. city in the world as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, so um, we we uh, went with the lagers and it's what we pr- primarily like to drink and what we like to brew. Um, I will say that hazy IPAs and IPAs are also extremely expensive to make. So you're making, you're using a lot of hops and then you get a little bit less yield out of the batch. Uh. So um, price-wise, I'm, I'm not, I'd be curious to actually work that out and see where the, where the yeah. numbers fall. It's kind of like a tank real estate issue mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. a ingredient issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, same thing with like fruited beers. I mean, the fruit gets expensive in order to be able to give it the right amount of flavor that you want you have to use a lot so and same with definitely with hazies they're um yeah it's a lot of hops yeah. <laughs> and hops are not cheap they are not hops are not cheap <laughs> um so we have a, a a text message uh from a listener who says that control freak tampa export and juice lord are all outstanding beers and it's hard to choose between mm. them uh, but also uh wondering if um you all could say uh were there breweries that inspired you all to start a brewery. Devin, why don't we start with you? Yeah, definitely. Um, um, I'm having a total mind blank right yeah. now. Well, maybe <laughs> we should ask you what was your first craft beer? I was My, kind of curious about yeah, that. Yeah, I can absolutely tell you that. Um, the name has since changed. At the time, it was Solson um, by Bells, but is now known as Oberon. Oh, Oberon, yeah. It's yeah. a classic. Yeah, so... Um, 
My mind is still blank. They're in Santa Rosa. Anybody want to help me out? Uh, Russian River. But thank you very much. Russian River, yeah. (laughs) Russian River. Uh, They were definitely a huge inspiration for me. And, you know, that's what they're known for is IPAs and, you know, wood and barrel-aged sour beers. And, um, yeah, I I went there and... Got to try their full board of Pliny, Pliny the Elder. Is that yeah. yes? That's yeah. one of theirs. Yep, mm-hmm. they're they're just one of the most legendary beers. It is, yeah. yeah. And so many of their beers have been, and uh, I think they've done it right. Quality is top of mind all the time, and they were doing something that at the time not really many people were doing. Nobody knew really what a lambic was or what a barrel aged sour was, and right. and they were kind of, you know pioneers in yeah, getting that yeah. going and they were definitely inspirational to me yeah i'd never heard of a goza until greg rapp homebrewed one and gave it to me i'm like this is weird <laughs> or a roush beer <laughs> or a roush beer yeah. right smoke <laughs> smoky and sour is that yes yeah yeah, yeah. I, I remember somebody coming up to me i was helping out at a beer festival and said i just had the worst beer i've ever had it was smoky and sour i'm like well okay you know it's a combination of a couple of challenging uh, styles there, dude. So, uh, Brittany, what about you? What uh, brewery inspired you and your husband? Um, so there are a lot of local and, and national brands that we were drinking at the time. Um, and it's uh, I'm, like, doing the mind blank thing. So <laughs> you got the city? Um, as far as, like, lagers go, when we were, over, we were overseas, we were in Munich drinking um lager beer it just tastes different over there versus the trip it makes across the sea um and we went to you know the magical Kloster andex and outside of munich and sat on a hill and drank liters of beer and um that that was definitely a a, a memory um that was inspirational for us um but that, was that sort of your first uh, kind of a, a brush with a uh, real beer um oh. real. or had you tried I mean, for me, it was when I first I went to, we to would go Germany. We went to Colorado quite a bit too, okay, and that the breweries yeah. in Colorado were um, were super influential for us. Um, you know, Avery was doing um, was big at the time and doing great stuff. Um, New Belgium, same. Um, so, I think the breweries out there allowed us to see what we could do with it, um, and then we kind of melded the two together. Gotcha. Uh, what about you, Charlie? Uh, probably first craft beer um, was 420 from Sweetwater back t- 2002, I think. Wow. I mean, think I was old enough to drink, but well, whatever. Uh, as far <laughs> as like I. inspiration uh, <laughs> over the years, uh, Founders is, was definitely a big inspiration early on because they were one of the more innovative breweries uh, back then. But I think a lot of, you know, inspiration evolves over time. Like, you know, 10 years ago, Hazy IPA wasn't a thing. So it's like, you know, that you get inspired by breweries that are doing that well. And, um, you know, as those became popular, like West Coast IPA started to fall off a little bit. You didn't see them around as much. Mm-hmm. And now they're making a comeback. And there's some newer breweries that have opened up in California and all over the country that are making some, like, I was at a brewery last year in Alpine, California called McElhinney. And we were there for like two hours, and I didn't want to leave. But uh, we had to get back to San Diego, or I'd have to live in Alpine. <laughs> um, so it's like there's different... Ins- I, I 
you know, if you don't continue to get inspired by people as you go, you know, mm-hmm. like I mean, Barry House inspires us with yeah. their loggers. You know, when we have friends that come into town, we bring them there because yeah. we can have like nine of those before we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and when we're low on lager, we put it on tap. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> A Tampa export, I guess, is your one of your core. It is our, yeah, and it's our main distribution brand. I, I, I love seeing y'all's beers out on, out, out in, in bars like, you know. In the so, wild. Uh, in the wild, at, at the press box. I went yeah. to watch a Rays game the other night. And, 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 and Charlie, you had your beer there and you had Tampa Export. I'm sorry. You're, they usually have Seventh Son. They didn't have it that night. But I just Shucks. love the fact that craft beer has just permeated the market. And I guess they expected. The yeah. consumers expected. Which I guess leads me to one question I have, which I get asked a lot also, which is, how come so many IPAs? <laughs> I, I think um, it's been the fastest growing brand or, you know, style of beer since like 09. And I think it's just an easy, easy entry point. And uh, I've never thought this way, but there's always been that stereotype that, you know, beer is for dudes and girls don't like beer. And for whatever reason, I like when, you know, was first in the business, like that was always like the entry point for females was IPAs. I have no idea why, but that was just like, and I think that it's like a, good universal style because it's not necessarily beer flavored beer so you can get into it it's not as challenging to because you know even you know 10 years ago when it was just like the bitter west coast ipas like people like bitter stuff you know now it's with the hazy stuff it's more fruit floor fruit forward there's a lot of citrus going on with it and i think you get into that and then you can expand your taste from that yeah um and kind of go from there so i think that's just like more of a universal type thing, you know, because a lot of people don't like sour. Some people taste a, you know, a really good lager and they're like, ah, it just tastes like beer. It's like, you know, people can be closed-minded sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are talking to uh, three of the best brewery owners in the state. Uh, and we're talking about the future of crab beer. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, call us at 813-239-9663. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. We have a very unusual situation here today because we have two women brewery owners. And I say that's unusual because, let's face it, this is a very male-dominated industry. So, uh, Devin, what you've, I guess you've probably been in the uh, business a little longer uh, than Brittany. So tell us, what was your, because you have worked at other breweries, you worked at yes. some big breweries. So tell us about uh, the experience as a woman in uh, brewing. Yeah. So yeah, my entire professional career has been in the brewing industry. And I went to Oregon State when their brewing program is only five years old uh, to get my degree um, as uh, in fermentation science because I wanted to open a brewery eventually. That was my goal. Uh, and so when I graduated, I had a really good opportunity to work with Anheuser-Busch, paid well, 401k, all the things, could put it on my resume. What I didn't realize was how much I would learn when I was there. And I did. I, I learned so much. Um, it was crucial and I still use some of the things I learned there today. And I also got my foot in the door at Sweetwater Brewing Company as their production manager. So um, yeah, I've been I've been in this industry for a long time and, and it's been really cool to see a lot more women come into the industry, especially given the history of beer. You know, this was something that was traditionally made by women. Um, and so um, okay, they, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that history. Yeah, I, I recommend to anybody uh, to, that 
has a time and inclination to read A Woman Belongs in the Brew House. Um, the author is escaping me right now, but it is a, a great book about the history of women in beer. And, um, and yes, uh, there was, uh, was there were stories of like the women having their special mash paddle or, you know, mm-hmm. that they would hang in the, in the house. And, and that would also be an inoculation source to get the fermentation started. Um, but yeah, it's more of a recent phenomenon that it's male dominated. And, you know, I think I have a whole lot of ideas about why that is, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I'm really glad that it's, it's evolving and changing. And, you know, some of the things that we face as women, um, whether you are behind the bar, an owner, a consumer, whatever it may be, is just, you know, preconceived notions. Uh, if I'm standing with a man who knows nothing about beer and I'm at a beer festival, people that are talking to me will automatically put their eyes towards the man, you know, and he's going to know what he's talking about and I don't know anything. Um, <laughs> and, you know... And what do you do to those people? Do I, oh, what do them? I do? do I just I say, I, I answer the questions and then they're kind of like, oh, and sometimes they get it and sometimes they keep looking back at the guy and I'm like, well, you know, you're lost. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just... You just got to keep being out there and, and you'll change people's minds. And then the other thing, too, is like, you know, women going into bars and, well, you're not going to want an IPA because you're a woman, you know, like, or you're not going to want this because you're a woman. And I even remember being at, uh, this is kind of off topic a little bit, like back when I was at Sweetwater, we would do these tours and, you know, get all sorts of people coming in and tasting things. And like the men would be embarrassed to get a Sweetwater Blue because it had fruit in it. It's like... What? It tastes good. Just right. drink it. Or okay. drink in a goblet. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Cigar City used to have an event called uh, Fruit in the Room. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I, was, I had a mango IPA for the first time at that event. I remember that because I ended up making one uh, in a homebrew situation with uh, the late, great Greg Rapp. Um, may he rest in peace. Um, so, yeah, the, it's, yeah. It's, it's, but... So, but it's, so it's changed. Do, do you find the not only is the industry dominated by women, but the customer base is it also dominated by? I'm sorry, dominated yeah. by men. Is the customer base also dominated by men? That's it's it's kind of tracked. I feel like it's it's evolving together, and the more obviously, just like anything, representation. You know, um, just overall, I think as an industry, we need to keep trying to be more and more diverse and um, and, and inclusive, and letting people know that there's a space for them, and and not letting them feel prejudged, you know, when they walk into the place. And, and so I think just be having an awareness, talking about it, being aware of it. And, um, you know, that's, that's helping to allow a more inclusive place and to let people know, like, Hey, there's a whole thing that you have maybe missed out on. And then on top of that, just from a purely business perspective, I mean, you really want to cut out half of the mm-hmm. population, right. you know? <laughs> so, so it makes sense to not make women feel uncomfortable for being interested in beer or working in and, beer. And, and don't make assumptions about what they might like because of their gender. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you, Brittany? Uh, uh, well, it's, it helps to be the owner, but you also have had experience in the industry uh, generally. Um, well, I appreciate you Gainesville. having both of us on, honestly, mm-hmm. um, because that's not common if you're going to see, you know, a, a panel of a panel of brewers. Um, you're not going to have a lot of women, um, especially owners, um, around the table, but it is becoming more common. I would say that Devin is a pioneer in Tampa Bay and she has been visible for a long time. And I think that helps a lot of women think that, hey, I can do this too. You know, I can be involved in this. Um, and just generally business owners, um, they 
aren't as many women for whatever reason, right? We know all of the different reasons that can happen. Um, you know, I we have a child. I'm pregnant with another and it's oh, well, congratulations. Uh, well, thank you. It makes it difficult potentially, you know, to, to run a business, but Can't also the beer to, <laughs> it changes your taste buds, believe it or um, not. Oh, There's a lot of different things that, um, yeah, could be talked about that in that aspect. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's been a joy, honestly, to, to see the other women in the industry in Tampa Bay. And, and I don't know how it is in every um, segment around the U.S., but I will say that, um, you know, I know that both Seventh Son and Mag have women brewers. Um, we did for a long time. She had to step away for her other job. And I think that that is such a cool thing to have back of house, um, not only just front of house, but because um, then they have, you just have different uh, diversity of ideas um, coming through the brewery, not just from the front of house sales side, maybe from also the back of house, um, having a say in, in all parts of the business. Uh, including what kinds of beers uh, you should be Absolutely. Brewing, right? I mean, Devin yeah. mentioned it with the, uh, we have, I don't know what our mix is for between male and female customers, but we have a lot of families that come to Berry House. Um, we have an outside beer garden. It's, it's welcoming. Um, we have a lot of families come in. We do some family-friendly events. And so... It, we absolutely don't turn away women um, and their kids, um, but please pick up the Jenga blocks at the <laughs> Yeah, some of the uh, breweries have become very family friendly. I mean, I think Green Bench and their and their uh, mm. beer garden is is very popular. You know, three daughters. It's it's like an amusement park in there. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, and I think they sell more beer from their tasting room than any other brewery in Florida. If it's not the top one, it's it's one of the top five. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Charlie? You uh, you let you let women work with you? Yeah, yeah. We uh, want, uh Amanda uh, is one of our brewers at, in our Bradenton location. She's awesome. That was we got very lucky with that one because. Yeah, we're still a pretty small group. I think we have 14 employees, so the openings don't come as often as we'd probably like as far as, like, growth and whatnot. But And we've probably missed out on a couple of really good female hires. We just didn't need the help at the time. But we got really lucky with her because she's a, you know, she's a badass. Uh, she, like I said, she got, she's the first one at any of our breweries every morning and crushes it. Yeah. And uh, as far as, like, consumer stuff, um, something I've it's going away a little bit, little by little, but like definitely it's more like guys in their 50s and 60s, they come up to get a drink and they're like, you know, uh, you got wine? Because I brought my wife with me. I was like, I don't hang out with women that only drink wine. <laughs> like, there's, there's, she'll, she'll, there's something on here she'll like. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that's funny because my wife, who couldn't be here today, but um, she always orders the strongest beer on the menu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I said, you know, generally start the other way, but <laughs> let's start at the top yeah. and work our way down. Yeah, a couple weeks ago, I remember that. Got the, <laughs> the barrel-aged barley wine. Yeah. Got the barrel exactly right. My mother is notorious for that. Yeah. That is what she likes, the quads, the <laughs> yeah, somebody uh, emailed us, uh, uh, David Bryant, uh, pointing out there's a lot of 12% beers out there now. I mm -hmm. mean, yeah. you know, we've gone from the days of, uh, you know, Miller Lite and 3% beer or whatever to days of, you know, these big barrel-aged stouts, 12, 13, barley wine, 14%. Um, so I, I do, I also got uh, a, a face uh, on, on Twitter, Ray Roa uh, asked... When I tweeted about today's show, uh, will you please ask if there's been any appetite in Tallahassee to help local breweries get out of the three-tiered system in any way? Or is that system helpful for them? And 
here to stay for a while. Now, the three-tier system just very briefly uh, grew out of uh, the post-prohibition days uh, where distributors uh, are in the middle between uh, brewers and consumers. Uh, before prohibition, uh, breweries were selling directly to consumers, and the beer was a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. You know, and one theory was it was too cheap, so we need to make it more expensive so people won't become drunkards. <laughs> anyway, so now we have this system embedded in state law where you're required, if you want to sell off-site, to use a distributor. So I think there are a few states that allow some self-distribution, but... A lot. Many. Is that a... Many. Many. Yes. Mm-hmm. Brittany, what, t- tell us... Yeah. Really? Yeah. I think yeah. we're at half at this point in yeah. time. Um, and uh, almost every year, a new state, <clears throat> excuse me, is, is, is getting self-distribution laws passed. And that would be... Um, now, it's, it's a challenging topic, of course. The wholesalers help us sell our beer. Um, distributors help us sell our beer outside of our doors. Um, <clears throat> it is less profitable for us as a brewery. So how do we work with a distributor? Um, you know, maybe under a certain barrelage, it would make sense for us to distribute our own beer. And then over a certain barrelage, we need them for logistics. That is what they are good at. Um, so how do we make that happen? You're all good at trucking? That's, you know, we can be. We are good at a lot of things, and we learn very quickly. <laughs> but I will say that um, that is something that has been on the docket for us as a Florida Brewers Guild um, to push through for legislation. And, and there are some other things that are working its way through legislation right now that, that will help us out as far as brand registration, potentially lowering licensing fees for smaller breweries versus the larger sizes. Um, but self-distro and franchise reform is something that is is being talked about more heavily in legislation right now. But not this year. Not this year, no. unfortunately. No. Yeah. Um, I mentioned that my wife uh, and co-host, Janet, could not be here today. That's because she's with her family in Greece, and she's listening. <laughs> oh, so uh, she says, great show. Love to hear these women brewers. And, um, and, and do the women feel that women prefer different kinds of beer than men? That's Janet's question. What do you all think? Uh, No. I mean, I think it's everybody has their own personal preference, you know, period, end of story, really. Yeah, Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, We'll we'll say that 21 to 23-year-old group definitely (laughs) likes sours a lot lot more than... Yeah, breaking it down by age is probably (laughs) more sense. Yeah, yeah, that demographic is definitely more Well, I find that fascinating. Sours were, again, not really much of a style uh, in this market until, I mean, right around the time when Seventh Sun opened 11 years ago. I think it was just starting to happen. What? What? Yeah. No. I mean, like, like I said, um, you know, there was a handful of people that were kind of trying to figure out how to make this kind of sour because one of the things with sours is they're traditionally made is you have to use bacteria to get that acidity that can be a potential contaminant down the line, and so finding a way to make it in where you are not sending that bacteria into the what we call cold side of the process is is critical. Um, so. Yeah, um, I lost. I, I lost my train of thought. Well, no, that no, that bacteria. <laughs> it's interesting because that bacteria can ruin a whole bunch of beer. Right? It can. Yeah. You don't want that in your IPA. So you have example. to keep that separate from your yeah. other uh, production. Yeah. So yeah. that was like doing the Berliners was a way to get that done. Well, uh, of course, Berliner is a German style. Uh, are you? Is, uh, we have uh, not brewed a Berliner. It not. has been talked about many a time, uh-huh. um, but it is it is not currently on the docket. Too now. scary. Uh, not too scary, just not something that, um, yeah, we want to. You've got your hands full making, uh, making pilsners and. We've uh, got a lot of other know. things, yeah. Um, 
I think another potential beer demographic is the uh, Saturday brew bus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, tell <laughs> us about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're great. They're great. Yeah. Um, we're on the we're on a brew bus loop. Um, oh, you are. So okay. we get. Um, people that jump and hop around to all different breweries. Yeah. So, uh, and, and not really driving cool. themselves. Not so that's, driving themselves. that's good. Hey-o. It's good. Safety first. It's all good. Um, but yes, yes, uh, there are certain things that that they would be maybe likened to. Then I, I find yeah. it interesting with the brew bus uh, thing is that that uh, not only do, do you drink beer at the brewery when you get back on the bus to go to another brewery, there's more beer on the bus. Mm-hmm. So um, that. That's yeah, a real party. It's a party. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, where are we headed now uh, with craft beer? Do you think? Um, I, I mean, it's so hard to know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like you probably didn't think you were going to be making seltzers eleven years ago. No, and I didn't think hazy IPAs were going to be a thing. I remember for us making IPAs and they came out hazy. I was like mortified. Oh, how do we fix this? Can we fix this? You know. Right. And now that has changed quite a bit. And is that, um, that now the dominant style among uh, IPAs, or is it the I West think, Coast still the? I think like Charlie said, the West Coast is kind of making a comeback, and that's pretty much our headbanger is basically a. A West Coast style, but I do think hazies are here to stay. I think people um, really enjoy them. I think they add a different elements. I mean, you know, talking about IPAs earlier, they're so fun to play with. That's why there's so many. There's new hops that come out all the time. That's also a factor. Right. So, I mean, I think that's going to continue to be a thing. I think um, we'll probably see more seltzers or like gluten-free sours, things like that. I think that lagers um, in general are also you know, making a resurgence. I don't know if that makes sense to say, mm-hmm. but in the craft market, yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think we're going to keep seeing more of the things that are happening right now. And then I'm sure some new things we've not even thought of yet. Mm-hmm. Awesome. If you're just tuning in, by the way, we are uh, speaking to the owners of three of the best uh, breweries in Florida. Charlie Mears is co-owner of uh, Magnanimous. Brittany Berry is co-owner of Berry House in Ybor City. Mm-hmm. And Devin Kreps is owner of Seventh Son in both Dunedin and Tampa. If you want to join our conversation, we've only got about uh, less than 10 minutes now. So please call us at 813-239-9663 or email us at dj at wmnf.org. I would like to point out, somebody emailed to point out uh, the um, bottle shop in Seminole Heights is one of their favorite places. To go. Jug and bottle. Jug and bottle. Yeah. This is awesome. They have an amazing selection of beer. Uh, But can can most people find your beers everywhere? Are they in Publix or is that like difficult to crack? So for us, um, we now do have two of our products in Publix. We have Headbanger and Graffiti Orange is our creamsicle wheat. Otherwise, um, you know, we're more, our other brands are more in like bottle shops, Lucan's, Total Wine, that kind of thing. And then also on draft at restaurants and bars all over the Tampa Bay area. This is an encore presentation of Wavemakers with Janet and Tom about Tampa Bay's craft beer scene. It was recorded live in April of 2023. We will not be taking phone calls today. Since this interview, the Tampa location of Seventh Sun has closed. I got a, a call here, uh, not, an email here from someone uh, asking about Cigar City. And uh, they are now owned by Monster Beverage. Um, so does that mean they're not an independent craft brewery anymore? Correct. <laughs> yeah, by definition. By definition. By definition. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. There's, it's a fun uh, situation to get into because there's a lot of folks who are very, you know, 
It's like, ah, they're not independent. We can't go there anymore. But still a lot of independent employees that work there that are, you know, doing a great job and whatnot. And the beer's still good. The beer's still Absolutely. pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 it's... It's interesting that uh, in the craft beer world, it's not like the, say, the software world where the goal is to be bought out by Microsoft. If you get bought out by InBev or Monster, for a lot of people in the craft beer world, y you, you don't exist anymore. Yeah. But, and so the last time that happened probably locally would have been Cigar City when they were bought out by a, a private equity firm in Boston, which then sold it to Monster. Um, I haven't heard of any other deals. Have you all been approached by any big, big brands? No, I think that's going to be one of those things that happens a little bit less for the mm -hmm. foreseeable future. I think you'll see more mergers and um, just kind of team ups more so than anything else. Um, I know I've had a couple of breweries that I've heard them talk about, you know, that's their goal is to sell out. It's like probably temper your expectations in that in that regard because it's hard to get big now because there's so yeah. many breweries yeah, there's so many, yeah mm -hmm. competition again right yeah. uh we do have a couple of calls so uh let's get to uh one uh from uh looks like he's an attorney yes good morning i have a question i'm attorney nibbity i excellent discussion point and actually you touched on a few of them collaborative endeavors the the beer loop and all of this but my real question is as you discussed collaboration are you collaboratively lobbying lawmakers to show them the air in their ways to have be holding to the brew companies or distribution companies pardon me and my second question would be i'll take my answers off there by chance would are you there is there are talks of a competition to the brew bus i know these talks because i'm working on paperwork for them and make, making sure everything is legal are Entities open to these things, or how are how did breweries decide to be a part of the the uh, the brew bus here in Tampa initially? And I will uh, I thank you all for being on the air, and I think, look forward to taking my answer off the air. Thanks for calling. I really appreciate it. So uh, that's some news there. I didn't know there was a new competition. Have you all heard about that? Yeah, they uh, they reached out to us. Our our uh, stance has always been like we're cool with the brew bus coming by in any given time um i'm not going to pay for them to come by and that was sort of this thing with the these new guys are coming there in like 28 cities in the u.s and i called some friends around the country and they pretty much took because their their pitch was it's going to be completely different than any other brew bus in the country and i called a bunch of my friends you know in charlotte and boston and seattle and they're like no it's the same yeah. So I was like, all right, cool. It's a bus that <laughs> yeah. takes you to breweries. <laughs> yeah. And then you get home alive. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. basically yeah. the business yeah. uh, model. Not a lot of innovation mm -hmm. to do in that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I think uh, to answer his first question, it sounds like the, uh, you, you all work through the Florida Brewers Guild to yes. deal with the legislature. You can't do it individually. I mean, you don't have Certainly time to... can do it yeah. individually, but um, as far as a unit working together to, to have an organized thought process, uh, the Florida Brewers Guild has been... Pretty instrumental into that. Um, Brooke Malone is the owner of Walking Tree Brewing over in Vero Beach, and she's the president right now. And yeah. she has done an excellent job of um, leading the charge and um, organizing the group over the last year. Um, I think that we have work to do with talking to the distributors. I mean, it's a yeah. there. You know, it's comes down to dollars. Right, of course. Right, of they're course. The, and, they're and in the making... business to make money off of distribution and they don't want to be cut into. I mean, it, it is kind of silly that if you are a small brewery and there's a restaurant across the street that, uh, that wants to sell your beer. beer, you can't take it across the street. The no. distributor has to pick it up, take it to their warehouse and then 
take it to their restaurant. Um, we do have one more call uh, from Matt. I'm uh, just thanking Magnanimous for opening up their location down here in Bradenton. Awesome, Matt. I love Thank- Bradenton, and it's a fantastic beer you guys make. I love the juice, Lord. Awesome. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks for the support on that. It means a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Have a good day. <laughs> Devin, did you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I I just wanted to add, um, because I I actually used to be on the board of the Florida Brewers Guild, and it was during the time that, uh, if everybody remembers, like the growler laws, I know that was kind of like a big thing, like trying to get the 32-ounce growler legal, but part of what was accomplished with that was the actual, instead of working through that loophole that you discussed about Cigar City and, you know, um, finding that loophole to have tasting rooms, that now... Making the tasting rooms legal was an important part of that law. Because I I don't get the impression that growlers really became that big a deal for you all from a bottom line standpoint? No, it just became a mess. It was a, it's a whole story. Yes. But didn't, didn't you have to give up something in order to get that? No. Uh, no? Okay. And the other thing we got, too, was being able to transfer between like ownership. So, like, I'm able to transfer between my two locations thanks to that okay. legislation change. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so that's very important because otherwise you would so you can you can literally take beer from one brewery to the other yes. without having to have a distributor. There's a limitation to it, but yes, otherwise I would have to buy it from my distributor to sell it into my other location. Yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts on this, Charlie? No. Yeah. Don't want to deal with Tallahassee. That's kind of, that's no, no. I mean, we we the you know if we're asked for any ideas, I, I throw them to the Brewers Guild. Yeah. <laughs> right now, going through legislation. Um, that is would be very important is brand registration. Um, yeah. Currently, we're asked to register any of our brands in distribution um, and technically in the tap room, but the, the enforcement is iffy. So, as far as if you know, Charlie's coming out with, I don't know. 10, 15 new beers a month, then he has to pay 30 bucks each time he is doing that. And that's on top of all the laws and all the all the taxes that we pay on making the beer, selling the beers, sending the beer, all the above. So $30 on every beer that we, that we actually make. Um, and so the brand registration laws that are pushing through the legislation right now would be extremely helpful for us on the bottom line standpoint. Okay, thanks so much. We're, we are really out of time. Uh, coming up is uh, NPR News. Thanks for joining us, everybody, and thanks for being here, you guys. Thank you. You're making Thank great you. beer. This is WMNF Tampa. period, Mark Twain emerged as a particularly vituperative critic of imperialism. He said that Americans who were fighting in foreign wars were using a bandit's musket under a polluted flag. In fact, he wanted to change the flag of the United States to replace the stars with skull and crossbone symbols. Uh, So I feel now that We've bleached the image of Mark Twain. 